time. I actually almost started to miss you. Actually, actually, a little bit I did miss y'all. I did miss you. So it's good to have you back. It's good to be with you. We're going to pick up exactly where we stopped off. In fact, we're still in the same passage. So if you if you weren't here last time, there's a sense in which, I'm not going to say you didn't miss much, but uh, we're in the same text. And uh, this semester we've been asking three questions as we move through the Gospel of Mark. Who is Jesus? What's he about? And why did he die? We got a really clear answer to one of those questions last time. Who is Jesus? We'll read it. Uh, that Jesus is the Christ. That one of his disciples uh, correctly identified that Jesus is the great king. But then Jesus threw him something of a curveball. Uh, when we found out that Jesus isn't a typical king, he's a king who's come to die. He, he predicts his own death. He's going to give away his life, which raises a hard question for them and for us. How do you follow, how do you serve a king who dies? So we'll be wrestling with tonight. How do you follow and serve a king who dies? Our text is Mark 8, 27 through uh, chapter 9, verse 1. So uh, let's read. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests, scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And he called to him the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it's come with power. All right, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together. Pray that you be gracious, Lord. Speak clearly to us from your word. Sharpen our minds and soften our hearts and press your truth into reality in our lives, we pray. I ask these things in your name. Amen. Uh, when you're in grad school, you end up doing all kinds of interesting jobs. Two of my friends worked together in a restaurant. And it was a nice restaurant, actually, a very nice one. Uh, they are what made the job odd. Uh, they worked out an agreement, it's a very nice agreement, that at any point one of them could dare the other to do something. And uh, I'll, I'll give you an example, well, at work, and I'll give you some examples of some of the things they did. Uh, once the dare was made, uh, you just sort of had to forget yourself, forget the implications, the consequences of what you were being dared to do, forget about even preserving your job, because they dared one another to do some pretty dumb things. So in this very nice restaurant, one of them had to uh, lay down a piece of 6 by 6 bubble wrap and dance in the middle of the floor in front of a crowded restaurant where everyone watched. Uh, another one had to secretly, without the manager knowing it, uh, push the ice cream cart out, which was like a small fridge, from table to table and serve people free ice cream. And uh, 
And on another occasion, one of our professors walked in, who was a, probably a 50-year-old woman, and when the other person saw it, immediately said, Esther Meek's here. You have to ask her to dance. It's not the kind of restaurant where anyone ever danced, uh, but sure enough, uh, they danced that night. So uh, the, the deal with the dare was um, they were constantly finding new ways to outdo each other, and you could never say no. That was the deal. You could not say no. That's yeah, an interesting problem, an interesting um, dilemma for them. I'm sure, I'm sure at times they thought, this will be the night I get fired. Uh, they both kept their jobs. Uh, but it highlights a problem for us that we uh, often want to say no, but we sometimes aren't able to do it. We have a hard time saying no. And, and part of it's because culturally, I think we've been raised, especially your generation, to believe that you can say yes to everything. But we're going to find it's quite difficult to say yes to everything and follow Jesus. It's hard because um, you can't say yes to everything and yes to Jesus at the same time. Actually, it's very questionable whether you can say yes to everything to begin with. Uh, But secondly, and this is sort of another way of looking at it, you can't stay where you are. You can't keep saying yes to everything in your life. You can't stay where you are and follow Jesus. We're talking about following Jesus tonight. We're going to see that sometimes you have to say no. And this is hard for us because we don't like to say no. Because it feels like death. It really does. I'm going to make that point tonight. Actually, I don't make that point. Jesus makes that point. We're going to see that uh, because Jesus calls us to follow him, sometimes we have to say no. And uh, you could take that sentence the wrong way. Uh, we're not saying no to following Jesus. Okay? Um, but in order to follow Jesus, uh, we need to do a couple things. In order to follow him, we have to say no. And that requires two things of us. We have to forget ourselves. Or forget self. And I'll talk about what I mean by self. And we have to find life. We have to forget self and find life. Uh, we read the whole thing. I'm only going to really focus on verses 34 and following. So let me sum up some of what happened. Uh, Jesus' men have been following him faithfully, although not necessarily very knowledgeably. They don't, until now, perhaps really know who Jesus is. Uh, Jesus asks, who do you think I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the Messiah, the King. And that's great. And yet, upon further um, study, we find that Peter doesn't really understand what that means. Because when Jesus begins to define his job description, uh, Peter rebukes him. That's in our text. He takes him aside and says, this can't be. And then, uh, again, and as I mentioned two weeks ago, when, when you get into a contest with Jesus, it's not a good idea because he always does everything better than you. And so, having been rebuked by Peter, Jesus rebukes Peter, calls him Satan, Pretty harsh words. It says, get behind me. And he gives an explanation. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, this is verse 33, but on the things of man. Peter, you're thinking very fleshly, very humanly in this regard. Get behind me. Now, imagine being Peter, okay? Um, you followed Jesus for some time now. At this point, maybe a couple of years. Probably always in the back of your mind wondering whether this is the great promised king. And you get the right answer. You're the one. You get it right. And then within moments, you're called the devil. Okay, you're called Satan. And, um, or, or at least it seems that way. And, and you have to wonder, where do you stand with Jesus? Am I still one of your men? Do I follow? What do I, what do, I do? What does this mean for me? Like, this is worse than being excommunicated. Who's ever been called the devil before by God? Um, what do you do with this? And there's hope for Peter. And it begins immediately in verse 34 when Jesus says, uh, he called the crowd 
to himself with the disciples and said, if anyone would follow after me. And if Peter listens carefully, Peter has to hear, anyone? I qualify for that. I'm somebody. I'm an anyone. There's room for me. Maybe I have to get at the back of the line, but I'm getting in line. There's room here for Peter. There's room for everyone. This is an invitation that Jesus issues to anyone to follow him. It's going to require us to forget ourselves and to find life. So what does it mean to forget self? And Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, in verse 34, uh, you have to deny yourself, deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And what we're talking about here, and I'll have to make this argument as I go along, because this is often terribly misunderstood. We're talking about renouncing the right of self-determination. That's my explanation. And you may say, well, that doesn't make any sense either. That doesn't help. It'll make more sense by the time we're done. But uh, Jesus says, you have to first deny yourself. And uh, we think we know what self-denial is. Um, it's saying no to, to something. And, and it's questionable whether or not we can even do that. <laughs> um, I like to say no to something. I like to say no to being a lazy slacker and get to the gym. I have trouble doing that. I'm not talking about myself personally, as you can tell. Um, but uh, some of you may be thinking that. It's hard to say no to certain things. Um, and, and yet, nevertheless, we think... I can deny myself if I can say no to one thing and, and do what I'm supposed to. An example is, some of you perhaps have given up something for Lent. You've given up chocolate for Lent. It's the extreme example of self-denial. And I would say, I'm sorry, it's not exactly what Jesus means here by denying self. It's not just giving up one little thing, or one thing in particular. Nor is it the, the, the far extreme of that. Which is to say, okay, self-denial is more than giving up chocolate. It is giving up all my worldly, earthly desires. I am bad. The world's bad. I need to deny all this and go live in a commune in a monastery somewhere. I need to go live in a cave with other people like myself. And what everyone who's ever done that realizes once they get there is, oh no, my self came with me. My heart is here. All those lusts and desires are still here with me, and I have to figure out how to deny myself here. The, the retreat in some kind of monastery, a refusal to enter into, you know, maybe for some of you it's like, I, uh, I have trouble with uh, sexual attraction to the other species, gender, so I will never, ever have a relationship with anyone ever. That's not the solution. It's not. Uh, that's not what we mean by self-denial either. Paul in Colossians uh, talks about this. He, he says, um, sometimes vowing these things off, saying I'll never do these things, giving up these little things, they have the appearance of godliness. It looks like the right thing to do. And he goes on and says, however, they, they have no power, none, to change your heart, to make you right with God. That's not what self-denial is all about. And we get a little further indication of what Jesus means in the next phrase where he says, take up your cross. And this is the point in which, at this invitation, everyone should have said, oh my goodness. Because this would have been incredibly vulgar in the first century. Um, one of the statesmen of the day, one of the philosophers and politicians, a Roman, said, the cross, the, this means of death, of execution of criminals, should not even be thought about by civilized people. That's how grotesque it was. We shouldn't even think about this. I mean, this is the equivalent of uh, the death chair, lynching, uh, firing squad. Jesus is saying something like, if you want to follow me, you have to go stand in front of a firing squad or go get 
couple thousand volts shot through your body in a chair. It's a vulgar expression of embracing death. And it should have caused everyone there to go, <gasps> what's he saying? Well, um, let's, let's think critically about this. This is college. Okay? Do some critical thinking. Um, what is Jesus not saying? He's, he's not saying, uh, go to your destruction. Go to your annihilation. And he's not advocating that you should hate yourself or seek to destroy yourself or even this material world. What's he saying then? I, I think he's saying that we not only have to say no to selfish things and certain acts that we know is wrong, but there has to be a sense in which our whole self, like the whole of you that would die on a cross, all of you in some sense, your whole selfish, self-centered self that seeks to make life work on its own, Somehow, that self, that's what the scripture calls your heart, or I call your wanter, or your flesh, that's got to die. And, and we get another instance of what this means, or another example of what this means when Jesus says, follow me. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And this is where it's really clear that Jesus isn't trying to destroy you. And he says, go to the cross, deny yourself. He's not trying to destroy you. And this is actually really logical. My three-year-old son gets this. We play this game where I'll say, Caleb, I'm going to eat your belly. This is what you're doing to your dad. And they'll say, no, daddy, no, don't eat my belly. <laughs> Why, Caleb, Why can I eat your belly? He'll say, because there'll be no more Caleb left. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> so, I mean, the same thing is true here. Jesus isn't saying, go destroy yourself, go get annihilated and follow me. It doesn't make any sense. He actually wants you to be some of you left to follow him. Does that make sense? I mean, he actually wants you to follow him. And that's the point. Following him will require a self-renouncing of your rights to self-determination. You're convinced that you're the master of your own ship, the pilot of your own life, and you, most of us give our hearts freedom to do what we want, where we want, when we want, and Jesus is saying, you know what, following me is going to feel like death. Because you have to say no to yourself and yes to me. And it requires radical dependence, by the way. I don't necessarily know where Jesus is going. He just told me he's going to die. I've got to follow you? Radical dependence. It's hard. So, uh, forgetting self, following Jesus means saying no to your radical independence. Which, in 21st century America, we've got a really good case of this. I mean... We have rights, and we have more rights on top of those rights. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, but we stake everything on them. You can't tell me what to do. I've got it figured out. I'll plot my own life. I'll make my own agenda. I'll do what I want to do. And so it raises the question, why would a sane person do what Jesus says? Why would they deny self, take up cross, and follow him? Why would you do that? Why would you do that? And I'm going to say that the answer that Scripture gives over and over, there's a couple of different answers, but one is, if you don't do it, that will kill you. This feels like death, saying no to yourself and following Jesus. It seems like death, right? Like, take up my cross, die, follow you. It's like the end of me. Well, Scripture says, continuing to do what you do will kill you. Continuing to serve yourself as you are will be the end of you. And this isn't just the Bible that says this, but anyone... It's able to take a step back and look at the way life works when most people will acknowledge this. David Foster Wallace was a, uh, a brilliant novelist and essayist. Took his life a couple of years ago. But in his commencement address at uh, Kenyon College in 2005, he, 
He started off talking, and the address is now pretty famous. It's called uh, This is Water. He talks about us, human nature, life, and work. And he starts off by talking about uh, two young fish swimming along. They meet an older fish swimming the other way. The older fish nods and says, Morning, boys. How's the water? The two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually they look at each other and say, What's water? You see, and the point is, when you're that deep into the atmosphere, and for us it's selfish independence, that's the atmosphere we breathe in our culture, you don't even realize how it's affected you. You don't even realize what you live in. And he goes on and, and describes, and really, he's speaking, imagine having this for your graduation address. It's great, but it's hard. In the trenches of adult life, there's no such thing as atheism. And uh, David Foster Wallace was not a Christian. Not really clear what he was. But he's being very practical and honest when he talks this way. There's no such thing as not worshiping. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type of thing, and here actually in the essay he lists about everything you can imagine, is that pretty much anything else you decide to worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, and some of you are working really hard to get those things right now, if they are what you tap real meaning in your life, then you will never have enough. Worship your body in beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you in the ground. Worship power. You will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect. Okay, this is some of us. It's not for any reason that we have a bunch of honors college kids here. I'm not saying that makes you automatically guilty. But you're a, you're a bright group of people. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, sometimes like a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. The insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're just evil or sinful. It's that they're default settings. It's water. It's the water in which you swim. You don't even realize it. It's the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, and the so-called real world out there will not discourage you from operating on your default settings. From the freedom to be lords of your tiny, skull-sized kingdoms, alone at the center of all creation. You get that? Your heart is bent on doing what it wants, worshiping what it wants, and establishing its own kingdom. And the world's not going to say, look at you doing that. Because we're all doing that. And you'll have your kingdom. It's as big as your head. And you're the king of it. And at the same time, if what he says is true, what you're worshiping will eat you alive. What is that for you? What are you worshiping? And some of you will give the easy answer. I worship Jesus. Or, I don't know what I worship. That's why I'm here. I'm trying to figure it out. But another way of getting at this is, what can you not say no to? What is it in your life that you just can't imagine giving up? But you can't imagine life without. That's your God. One of the pastors of our denomination was at a convention years ago. He had been secretly using narcotics for some years, painkillers. And a person there who wasn't a Christian, who was an expertise expert in this field, came up afterwards and said, Sir, uh, what do you worship? I worship Jesus, the living God. No, sir, you do not. You worship narcotics. You could tell. You could tell. And immediately that guy quit his job and checked himself into a clinic because he knew that that guy was right. This had become his God, and it was eating him alive. What is it that's eating you alive? Maybe you don't feel like it is. Maybe you feel like you can nurture this thing and keep it in the closet, continue to work it. And the reason you do this is because it really does give you some joy in life, right? I mean, you, you wouldn't serve this thing or let it serve you 
if, if you didn't enjoy it. If it didn't boost your ego or make you feel good about yourself. At the same time, it will eat you alive. It's not real life. And it will slowly take over you. Another pastor friend has said, uh, yeah, our idols is what this is. But we think they're working for us. But we're wrong. They're pimps. They're working us. They're working us. They're going to squeeze every bit of life and joy out of you. Well, saying no to Jesus is hard. Not saying no to Jesus is hard. This will kill you too. And on the other side of no, saying no to self, following Jesus, you'll be surprised to find life. This will be much faster, by the way. That we'll be shocked to find there's life. We find life here uh, through our death. In verses 35 through 37, Jesus, having issued this invitation, knowing it's hard, it seems like he has to argue with them. Like I think he realizes, okay, what I'm calling you to do sounds really hard. It's going to sound like death to you. So let me argue with you. If you try to save your life, you're going to lose it. If you stay at the center of your world, your skull-sized kingdom, worshiping yourself, you're going to lose life. It's going to slip through your fingers. The language actually says something like, you're going to fritter away your life. You're just going to waste it away actively. But if you give up your life for me, you follow me, give it up for the gospel, you'll get your life back. He goes on and says in verse 36, it's possible in some sense that you could gain the whole world and still lose your soul. And the way we typically read this is, as Christians, or maybe even unbelievers, we would read this and say, oh, you're talking about hell. Like, you live selfishly so you get hell at the end. Well, that's certainly part of the text. I say it's more than that. I think Jesus is also saying, you can live in such a way now that you can have all of the world that you want. At the same time, your soul is going to be shrinking and dying. You're becoming less and less who you're really supposed to be. And Jesus is saying, it doesn't have to be that way. You can say no. There is life to be had. And frankly, the hardest part of this whole thing, this sounds really hard, it should. If it's not sounding hard, you're not listening. The hardest part of this whole thing, this whole equation which we haven't looked at, has already been done. It's already been finished by Jesus. See, we we find life through our death by saying no to ourselves and saying yes to Jesus. But we also find life through his death. That's how this text starts in verse 31. He begins to teach them. Son of man must suffer many things, be rejected, the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. Why? Why must this happen? Who is this son of man person? We talked about this two weeks ago. Jesus is the king that must die because it's God's good purpose that... His suffering servant, his son, would die to bear the sin and shame and guilt of people that would trust in him. That his life and death would set people, set people free from the tyranny of death. That they might actually live life. He's giving himself as a substitute. That's what he's doing here. You can have life through his death. Christianity gets the reputation among its most fierce critics, and I would say those who haven't really given it a good hard look, of being a dour religion filled only with duty, discipline. And yet, at the core of Christianity, as Jesus defines it is, love God, love neighbor. That doesn't sound too terrible. When Paul talks about the fruit of the Christian life, what a Christian should look like, the first things he says is they should be marked by Love, joy, peace. Love, joy, peace. He goes on and says some other things that are hard, like self-control. 
Does love, joy, and peace sound like death to you? Jesus has come that you could have life. He's given his life for you that you could have life in him and an abundant life, a different kind of life, not a life tyrannized by your selfish hearts, but a rich, vital life lived in communion with him and with others. So Jesus leads us to life through his death, and to follow him we have to be willing to say no to self. And that's going to feel like death to you. Every day it does feel like death, actually, when you say no. Yeah. Yeah, we have this perception that uh, it was really easy for Jesus. Like he was God. You know, it was easy for him to resist sin. And uh, for some of us, resisting sin is not hard because we give in the first second, right? Like, I shouldn't do this. I'm going to do it anyway. We don't know how hard it is. It doesn't necessarily feel like death. Jesus knew what it felt like more than anybody. Because in every instance, he resisted to the very end of the temptation. He always persisted through the temptation to the very end and was faithful. He knew more what it felt like to say no than any of us. And he always said no. At uh, the end of the movie, it's a famous movie. I don't expect many of you have seen it. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Who's seen it? A few of you. It's a classic. This is not dating me because it's older than I am too. So I don't expect you to have seen it. Classic movie, classic end. They're running for their lives. Uh, they've come to the, to the dead end. They're, uh, they're running away from people that are trying to kill them. And they come to a canyonous waterfall. There's nowhere to go. And this conversation happens. Uh, Butch says, the way I figure it, we can either fight or give. If we give, we go to jail. Sundance says, I've been there already. But if we fight, they can stay right where they are, starve us out, or they can get in a better position and just shoot us. I mean, they could even start a rock slide and kill us. What else could they do? Sundance says, well, they could surrender to us, but I don't see that happening. They're going for position, all right. We better get ready. Are you ready? And Butch, looking at the canyon and at the waterfall, says, no, no, no. We'll jump. Uh, no way. No, it'll be okay. If the water's deep enough, we won't get squished to death. They'll never follow us. How do you know that? Would you make a jump like this if you didn't have to? I have to, and I'm not going to. Well, we've got to. Otherwise, we're dead. Come on. Just one clear shot. That's all I want. Come on, man. Uh-uh. We got to. Nope. Get away from me. Why? I want to fight them. They're going to kill us, maybe. Do you want to die? 